have your copy of God's Word and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Kind of our, our normal pattern of preaching here is to take a book of the Bible and work through it verse by verse. So we come this morning to Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. So actually, I printed the bulletin before I finished the sermon, and I realized that I I tried to bite off more than I could chew, so we're not going to get through what's there uh, in the bulletin. This is is a common malady I have. So Matthew 26, uh, 47 to 56. So we just looked at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, yet not I will, but what you will. As the Father handed him that cup, symbolizing all the, the suffering for sin that he would have to undergo. And now... He's just stood up. He's told his disciples, look, my betrayer at his hand. Rise, let us be going. That's where we pick up in verse 47. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, may your word shine as light into our hearts, giving us the knowledge of your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. As we see this familiar scene, this familiar passage, Lord, may you give us a fresh sense of the humility of Christ, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And by beholding the truth of your word, may we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Over the last year and a half, Uh, I've heard a lot of people being labeled heroes. This is a term that has been thrown out quite a lot. In fact, a number of signs you'll see on places say heroes work here. In fact, I remember we were driving up to Savannah, Georgia. We stopped at a a McDonald's in in Jacksonville, and the the sign on the McDonald's wasn't, you know, fish fillet for 99 cents. It was heroes work here. Uh, You know, it's interesting. It's a common sign we've seen posted on businesses, schools, hospitals, and it, it got me thinking which is always dangerous. My dad used to, I used to come up to my dad and say, Dad, I've been thinking. He said, that's what I was worried about, son. That's what I was worried about. (laughs) Throughout history, how have people thought about what defines a hero? Throughout history, how have people thought differently about what defines a hero? And in my my limited exposure to this study, 
there's really what I believe is a traditional view of a hero, what makes someone great, and then a more contemporary view of what makes a hero. The traditional view of what makes someone a hero is this idea of the victor or the champion. So in the Greek myths, the hero was the one who led the army in battle and came back victorious. So Odysseus was a hero in Greek myth because he came back from battle victorious. And now he came back from battle victorious, but he had defied the gods. He had made it through all the different tests that they had put on him. He was a hero. In political history, Alexander the Great was a hero because he had military might and military strength and he had success in conquering other nations and expanding his empire. So he was considered a hero. You even see this show up in the biblical narrative. David is considered a hero and great in the eyes of the people because though Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. And that infuriated Saul because he no longer was viewed as great, as the hero in the eyes of the people. Now David was. And this also, we have a a modern example of this uh, in the World War II. So the famous World War II general of America, George S. Patton, he espoused this traditional view of greatness in one of his most famous lines that I have to slightly modify to make it PG. He said, no soldier ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making some other poor soldier die for his country. If you get that, you probably understand George Patton. He had a traditional view of a hero. So in the traditional view, a hero was someone who exerted their power, displayed bravery in order to achieve victory of the traditional view of a hero. But in our contemporary culture, there has been some seismic shifts in how people define what makes someone great or a hero. And I realize I'm treading uh, on dangerous ground here when it comes to saying things like this, but I'm going to dare to tread here. A number of sociologists have argued that we are seeing the emergence of a victimhood culture. So typically there's honor cultures, dignity cultures, Now that we're seeing a rise of victimhood culture, a culture in which a hero is not someone who demonstrates bravery or exerts their power to gain victory, but someone who leverages their weakness or victim status in order to gain sympathy from the crowd. In a culture in which entitlement is more valued than sacrifice or bravery, it is easy to display your weaknesses to use your victim status to gain sympathy. It used to be considered, going to work used to be considered just doing your responsibility. Now it is considered in many ways, being a hero. Whereas competing through pain and injury was considered heroic, now withdrawing due to the strain of competition is considered heroic. Listening to and analyzing alternative viewpoints that you don't agree with used to be considered part and parcel of the learning process. Now, shutting down and silencing all alternative viewpoints is considered heroic. And this is not all throughout culture. There are are different people who hold to different views of a hero, but this is one that is is rising up. And so the contemporary culture hero, in the eyes of many, is someone who leverages their weakness or victim status in order to gain sympathy. You can see how there's been a great shift. Traditional culture says you're a hero because you exert your power or display bravery to gain victory. Contemporary culture says, no, you leverage your weakness or neediness or victim status to gain sympathy. And the reason I bring this up, you're probably wondering, why is he doing this? Is because... Jesus in this passage displays a true greatness as our savior in ways that defy both of those views of a hero. In fact, he turns both of those upside down and inside out. And he displays his true greatness as a savior in a completely different way. Think about this. Jesus could have exerted his power in this scene to extinguish his enemies in the blink of an eye. 
Do you not know that I could call to my father and legions of angels, 72,000 angels could come at my aid and this would be over with in a second. And yet he exerts his power not to gain victory, but to allow his enemies to take him captive so that he could redeem us. And also, if ever a victim card could have been played, if ever one could bring out the status of being unjustly treated, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was betrayed. He was unjustly taken captive. He had to sit through a trial in which every one of the laws of justice was being broken. And then he was accused unjustly and he was beaten. And yet instead of playing the victim, displaying his weakness to gain sympathy from the crowd, he silently endured injustice while entrusting himself to his father who judges justly because this was his father's plan for him. Jesus did not display greatness through his power or through playing to his weakness. Instead, he displays true greatness by demonstrating his power in and through weakness on our behalf. So what we're going to do as we walk through this passage is we're going to see that Jesus demonstrates his power in weakness as a voluntary prisoner, as a willing captive on our behalf. So this scene opens with the words in verse 47, while he was still speaking. So Matthew, the the scene shifts, but Matthew wants to know the setting has not shifted. In fact, this immediately takes place right after he gets up with all of his resolve and says, look, there's my betrayer. He is at hand. While he was still speaking, the army comes with clubs and swords. The betrayer comes. And so what commentators have pointed out is that Jesus, who was just handed the cup of suffering by his father, the cup of wrath that he has to drink for sinners, as soon as he's handed that cup, he immediately has to start drinking from it right away. There's not a second when after he says, yet not my will, but your will, that the father hands the cup and he says, you need to start drinking it. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be unjustly taken captive. He's drinking it already. And on this occasion, it looks as if Jesus has been cornered and captured. Remember, all this time, the religious leaders want to put Jesus to death. They've already made their end game put Jesus to death, get rid of him. We can't silence him. We can't discredit him. We must put him to death. And yet they've not had the opportunity. In fact, he mentions, if you look at verse 55, he mentions, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. What Jesus is pointing out there is he's exposing their hypocrisy. If I'm really guilty of what you're going to accuse me of, why didn't you come get me earlier? You had plenty of opportunities. It's because they knew if they arrested Jesus in public, all of the crowds would turn against him. They had to do it in a way that was secret, that was kind of under the cover of darkness. There's even like the fact that it's dark and evening here kind of casts a moral shadow over what they're doing. It's evil. Their works are in darkness, so they're not exposed. And yet it looks like they've found the perfect opportunity. They've cornered and captured Jesus. It looks as if his enemies have finally got the upper hand. So if you ever played the game of chess, I personally prefer checkers, a little easier to understand. But in the game of chess, if you're making your moves and maneuvers and the opponent has you so cornered that there's no moves you can make to get out of it, you resign. I think you knock over your queen or the king. It's one of those pieces that's nicely carved. And you resign. You admit defeat because you know there's no way out. And it seems like in this scene, 
Jesus has to knock over that piece on the board because he's cornered, he's captured. It looks as if Jesus has been overpowered. So you see in verse 47 and verse 55 that there is a great crowd, a large number of people who come armed with swords and clubs. So I'm a parent of little kids, so I think of you know, Beauty and the Beast when Gaston goes to the castle and he's got all the militia with him armed with swords and clubs and torches and they've come. And so this is probably in this crowd, it's a mix of Roman soldiers and it's a mix of just people from Israel who have sided with the religious leaders and do not like Jesus. They want to see him uh, put to death. And they have a great crowd. And, and what does Jesus have? He has a band of sleepy disciples who couldn't even stay awake for one hour to watch and pray. So, so the scene is there. It's like two armies are coming, meeting on the battlefield, as it were. One has a great crowd, very motivated with swords and clubs. The other barely can keep their eyes open. And there's just 11 of them and Jesus. So it seems as if he's been overpowered. And it looks as if he's been outmaneuvered. So they wanted to get rid of him. They couldn't find the opportunity. But now they have someone on the inside. They have someone who knows where Jesus goes. They know the places where he goes off with his disciples, which is why Judas leads them there. The Garden of Gethsemane was a regular place that Jesus would take his disciples. Jesus knows that Judas knows about it, and he waits for him there. But Judas doesn't know that. He's coming to betray the Lord. And here's how he does it. Verse 48, he tells them, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. Now, why did he have to give this sign? Well, this is before the day of photos. They didn't have yearbooks. They didn't have social media accounts. It's nighttime. It's dark. And they, you know, it's hard to distinguish one person from the other. So they need to make sure that they get the right person. So Judas says, I know who he is. And so this is a sign of, when I go up and kiss him, that's the one you need to seize. Now, I'm, I'm Swedish and Norwegian by descent. And so when it comes to the idea of, of a kiss, a greeting, that's very unfamiliar and uncomfortable territory for me. And in fact, I, I've joked about, you know, one of our COVID protocols is no holy kisses. You know, for the time being, we're going to refrain from those. But in this culture, it was a common, typical greeting but it was one that carried with it a lot of symbolism. And it's symbolism in which Judas giving that sign means all the opposite of it. So a kiss was in one sense a display of friendship and fellowship. So when Paul writes the letters to the church, he said, greet one another with a holy kiss. He's saying, give one another a sign of your friendship and fellowship in the Lord. That's what a kiss meant. And then in uh, Psalm 2.12, the psalmist says, kiss the son lest he be angry. So it's not just a sign of friendship and fellowship. It's a sign of loyalty and allegiance. So you've probably seen your old maybe movies representing Roman and Greek times, and they would kiss like a signet ring of the emperor. It was a sign of loyalty and allegiance. So a kiss could even mean that. And it didn't just mean fellowship or loyalty, but it also signified gratitude and thankfulness. One time Jesus was at a feast with some tax collectors and other people, and a lady walked in whom Jesus had healed. And she anoints his feet, wipes his feet with her hair, and then profusely kisses his feet. And what she's doing is with each kiss, she's saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It was a sign of her gratitude for the Savior and what he had done for her. And the tragic irony of Judas's kiss on the cheek of Jesus 
is that it means the complete opposite of every single one of those. He is not giving the kiss of a friend, but of an enemy. He is not showing loyalty to Jesus, but betrayal. And he feels no gratitude for Jesus, but only resentment and disappointment. Many people wonder and speculate, and it is that speculation, why did Jesus betray Judas? Sin is the ultimate answer, but probably one of the reasons underlying that is he wanted a different savior than what Jesus was going to be. Maybe he wanted a military leader, one who was going to overthrow Rome, and Jesus was not that. So he was disappointed with Jesus. He was willing to give him up. If he's not going to give me what I want, at least I can get 30 pieces of silver out of it. So it looks here as if by Judas' betrayal, Jesus has been outmaneuvered. So he's overpowered, he's outmaneuvered, and it looks like he's also accepted defeat. So look at verse 51. So they laid hands on Jesus to seize him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So John tells us that it's Peter. I mean, you you could have guessed it. Peter's the one who's always reacting, acting sort of rashly. And he sees that this crowd, this mob is going to take Jesus away. And he knows where it leads. And think of this from the perspective of the disciples. We know that Jesus is in control. We know that everything is working out according to his plan. But for the disciples who do not want to see their Savior die, they think it's time to to get desperate. Desperate time, call for desperate measures. And the only thing they can think to do is to fight for Jesus, to fight for his freedom. So he pulls out a sword and he cuts off his ear. But as soon as he cuts off his ear... Jesus gives this command that stuns the disciples. Put your sword back in its place. So the disciples still need to understand at this point, this is not a military Messiah who's come to establish an earthly kingdom. This is no political revolution going on. He has come to save people from their sins. That was what was announced at his birth, and yet it still hasn't penetrated their thick heads. Unless you think, you know, how thick and dull must these guys be? I mean, they, he has repeated this over and over and over and over again to them that I must go to Jerusalem and die. And yet, they still don't get it. But consider how often things in the Christian life do not penetrate our thick and dull skulls as well. Consider how many times you have read about not worrying or being anxious. And I'm going to guess you have often still been worrisome and anxious. Or how often have you resolved to hold the reins of your emotions, like anger? I'm not going to get angry again. I'm not going to let that happen. And the next minute you turn around and you see something that makes you angry again. Growth in godliness is a process, not an event. It is a process, not an event. And it is often a frustratingly slow process. So Claire Ferguson said, grace often works painstakingly slow in the lives of believers. And it's, the results are often hard to see in the moment. It's like watching a tree grow in your yard. You, you keep looking at it, you keep looking at it, hoping for fruit, hoping for fruit. You see nothing, but you step back years later and you see, wow, it has grown, it has produced fruit. But yet in the moment, it seems so frustrating. But thank the Lord that our thickness and dullness is only matched by Christ's patience toward us 
and the Spirit's power in us. He's so patient with his disciples and with us. Well, now let's return to this command. Put your sword back into its place. Why does Jesus give this command? Well, if you look at verses 52 to 54, immediately after giving the command, he gives the reasons for why he has issued this command to the disciples. The first reason that Jesus gives is put the sword away because it is harmful to the advance of my kingdom. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. In other words, what goes around will come around. And you've seen this take place in the world in general. On the road, when someone gets mad at another driver and goes into road rage, it usually leads to other road rage and other drivers. What goes around comes around. Or kids, but your parents have told you this, what goes around comes around. If you're being a punk to one of your siblings, you should probably expect that one of your siblings is going to be a punk to you. Now, they shouldn't do that. I know you guys don't do that. But I'm sure your parents have talked to you about that once or twice. So that's what Jesus is saying, is if you take up the sword in the cause of my kingdom, that sword will come back on your own head. It will only return evil for evil. And the next reason he gives is this, put the sword away because it is unnecessary for the advance of my kingdom. Verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? So Peter takes up the sword because he thinks Jesus needs him to fight his way out of this. From his eyes, he sees Jesus as overpowered and outmaneuvered, and this is the latch effort to save Jesus. Jesus is saying, Peter, if I needed you, I wouldn't, because I could call upon 72,000 angels. That's how much 12 legions is. And my father would send them at once. Jesus is exactly where he wants to be, doing exactly what he is supposed to be doing. He is the Prince of Peace who has come to lay down his life. He says in John's Gospel, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody does. I lay it down of my own accord. That's what the Savior is doing. Well, this begs the question, if he could call an angelic army to his aid, well, then why doesn't he? Well, the last reason, look at verse 54. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Put away the sword because it's harmful to the cause of my kingdom, because it's unnecessary, and because it is not what God has ordained. It is not the plan that the Father has given me. The only way that cosmic rebels and sinners like us can be made right with God is if Jesus Christ, the righteous one, willingly allows himself to be taken captive and dies in our place. If Jesus saves his own life, then our lives are doomed. If Jesus loves his own life, then our lives cannot be redeemed. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, it must be so. There's not some divine constraint outside of him imposed on him. But if sinners are going to be made right in the sight of a holy God, the holy, righteous one must take their place and bear their punishment in their place. So Christ has not come to take up a sword against us, but he has come to take nails for us in his own hands and feet. Jesus has not come to pour out the cup of wrath on us. He has come to drink it for us. 
That's what he's come for. It must be so. And some have been left wondering with this statement, if Jesus meant to outlaw the sword altogether, right? All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. And some have taken this and brought it into the realm of political philosophy and said, a Christian must be a pacifist. If that's a question you have, I I don't have time for it, but I would recommend, C.S. Lewis has a great essay on pacifism. I I would recommend that to you. It's very wonderfully argued. But let me summarize what I think we need to understand with this. Jesus does not intend for us to take his words as relating to government, but to the gospel. He does not intend for us to take his words as applying to all realms of Christian society, but to the church in particular. We need to distinguish between the cause of the government and the cause of the gospel. So I would argue that the use of the sword, which is the idea of the threat of punishment or the use of force for defense, that's what the sword represents, it has been given by God to the government to promote justice and maintain peace. But the sword has not been given to the church to advance the gospel. You might think this is a no-brainer, but there are many times in church history where this lesson has not been taken to heart. In fact, much confusion comes when we mistake the realms and boundaries of the gospel and the government. And J.C. Ryle has a very helpful word on this matter. He says this, the sword has a lawful office of its own. It may be used righteously in the defense of nations against injustice. It may become necessary to use to prevent the advance of evil upon the earth. But the sword is never to be used for the advance of the gospel. Christianity is not enforced by bloodshed and belief can never be coerced by force. Happy would it have been for the church if this sentence had been more frequently remembered. There are few countries in Christendom where the mistake has not been made of attempting to change men's religious opinions by compulsion, penalties, imprisonment, and death. And with what effect? The pages of history supply an answer. No wars have been so bloody, caused so much division as those which have arisen out of the collision of government and religion. The weapons of the Christian, this is key, the weapons of the Christian are not the physical weapons of this world, but the spiritual weapons that God has supplied by the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. They're thinking of a military Messiah, and they're thinking they can use force to advance the cause of Christ, and he's saying, that is not how the gospel will advance. So that begs the question, what are the spiritual weapons that the Christian is supposed to take up to advance the gospel? There are weapons you are supposed to take up, but they're not the physical weapons of this world. They're the spiritual weapons supplied by God. And what's interesting this idea of power and weakness. There are weapons that look weak in the eyes of the world, but by God's grace and the Spirit's blessing, they are powerful weapons in advancing the gospel. So Christian, take up the weapon of godly character. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, your good character, and glorify your Father in heaven. One of the best sermons you will ever preach is your life preaching the character of Christ, transforming you. We'll never have perfect character, but through sincere, God-dependent obedience, we can display godly character, and that is a powerful weapon for the advance of the gospel. Christian, take up the weapon of joyful suffering. In a world that is plagued with selfishness and narcissism, where this world and this world alone contains all the joy and satisfaction that we can ever find, when we, by God's grace, Embrace trials with joy and with patience, knowing 
that we are citizens of another kingdom and have another home, it is a massive testimony to the world that is often hopeless and unhappy. And Christian, take up the weapon of sacrificial love. We live in a world where people worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. That's the main item of worship in this world. Yet when Christians, by God's grace, instead of looking inward, look outward to others, and we go out of our way to make sacrifices for others, it is a great weapon in the cause of the advance of the gospel. But the most important, the most powerful weapon that you are to take up, Christian, is the weapon of the proclamation of the truth, especially the gospel. Take up the weapon of truth and proclaim the gospel. Godly character, joyful suffering, sacrificial love are ways that we adorn the gospel, like decorations on a Christmas tree, but they are not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for us, how he lived the perfect life that we could never live, how he died the death that we deserve to die and rose in victory over all of our enemies, sin, Satan, and death. Our lives can testify to that, but we should never mistake them for that. Christ and Christ alone and his truth, which is good news, not good advice, is what people need to hear. So the most powerful weapon we can use in the advance of the kingdom of Christ is the truth that sets captives free, is the good news that liberates hearts that are in bondage. And as Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying, the gospel is like a lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage and it will do its work. The gospel is the power of God onto salvation. That is the great weapon that advances the cause of the kingdom of Christ. Well, finally, the scene ends, as you see in verse 56, with all the disciples leaving him and fleeing. So at the end of this scene here in the garden, as Jesus is led away from the garden, he is, in all respects, completely alone. He has been deserted. He has been abandoned. He is by himself. Yes, There's the great crowd leading him captive, but they're not with him. They are against him. He is by himself. He is now completely alone on the path to the cross. What this is representing to us is that he's completely alone on the path to the cross because only he can walk that path. Only he can take up that cross, which we need him to take up in order to save us. Many people have pointed out that it's as if in this moment, By being completely alone, he has become that scapegoat represented on the Day of Atonement. So in the book of Leviticus, the the high and holy day of Israel's calendar was the Day of Atonement. There were two animals. One, the priest would lay his hands on it, and they would sacrifice the priest and sprinkle the blood to cleanse the mercy seat. But another one, the priest would lay his hands on that animal, and they would send it off alone into the wilderness by itself. And the idea was it was representing the fact that our sins need to be carried away from us. Our sins cling so closely to us, but they need to be carried away from us. And so they would lay their hands, signifying the transfer of sin, and that animal would go off into the wilderness on its own. And Jesus here has becoming that scapegoat. The high priest is about to lay his hands on Jesus and declare him guilty. And Jesus is completely alone and abandoned by the disciples. And then he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because only Jesus 
can carry our sins as far away as the east is from the west. And I want to close with this, pointing out the gospel metaphor in this scene. Jesus, in this scene, is taken captive and led away as a prisoner. And the picture here is that he is undergoing what our sin and rebellion has done to us. Apart from the grace of God, we are imprisoned in sin and bound in chains to our fallen desires, and we cannot free ourselves. Sin is an enslaving power for which we do not have the strength to free ourselves from it. But Christ willingly, lovingly, voluntarily allowed himself to be taken captive by sinful creatures that he had created. Why? He was taken prisoner that we might be able to go free. He allowed the chains of imprisonment to be put on his arms so that he could release the chains of sin from ours. This is what our Savior is undergoing for us. Christ has come to be taken captive so that in him we can have freedom and freedom indeed. And Christian, if you are in Christ, you have freedom in the truest sense of this word. Freedom is another word that often gets thrown out. It usually means my personal, individual, isolated liberties. But biblically, freedom means something far better. Why was Christ led a prisoner on your behalf? Because he purchased your freedom from the guilt of sin. There's no guilt on you because he has taken that guilt and given you his innocence. Christ has purchased for you the freedom from the condemning justice and wrath of God. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation because Christ was condemned in your place. And Christian, you have the freedom from the curse of the law. You do not have to ever worry about facing any of the penalties of the perfect holy law of God because Christ bore every single one of those penalties for you in your place. And Christian, you have the freedom from the destiny of this present evil world. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. You have a new citizenship that is in heaven and from it we await a savior who is bringing a new heavens and a new earth. And Christian, you have freedom from bondage to sin, Satan, and death. You know the one who is the resurrection and the life and though you die, yet shall you live. Sin no longer reigns over you. And Satan is no longer your master. You have a new master. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And best of all, Christ has purchased your freedom to live as a child in the Father's family. You have access to the throne of grace. And better than that, the one who sits on the throne of grace. You have full, free access to the Father. You can come boldly before the throne because the one who sits on that throne calls you his child. That is the freedom that a Christian has. And it's because Christ willingly, lovingly, voluntarily displayed his power in weakness by being led captive so you could go free. So Jesus demonstrates his power in weakness. And this is true greatness. He willingly allows his creatures to take him captive because he takes up a cross instead of a sword so that we might know freedom. Let's pray.